Good afternoon and welcome to the 167th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we have a discussion of anti-Chinese stigma during the COVID-19 pandemic with Joki Morumba and Jack Rozdilski. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, November 11th, 2020, there are 1,278,280 deaths globally from COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 10,353,604 cases in the United States. That's up from 10,218,278 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 240,688 deaths in the United States from COVID-19. That's up from 238,863 reported yesterday. Staggering infection rates and death counts across the United States right now. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is, my relatives in Wuhan survived, my uncle in New York not, did not. This is by Yi Rao. Dr. Rao is a molecular neurobiologist in China, and this appeared July 22nd in the New York Times. New York Times. Eight is eight thought to be a lucky number in China because in Chinese it sounds like sounds like fortune. Four, 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 four is a bad number because it rings like death. Five two zero sounds like I love you. Having always disliked superstition, I was dismayed to receive a message by WeChat at 4:44 p.m on May 20th, Beijing time, informing me that my uncle Eric, who lived in New York, had died from COVID-19. He was 74. Uncle Eric was a pharmacist, so presumably he contracted the virus from a patient who had visited his shop in Queens. Infected in March, he was sick for more than two months. He was kept on the ventilator until his last 10 days. By then, he was deemed incurable, and the ventilator was redirected to other patients who might be saved. The medical trade runs in my family. I now preside over a medical university in Beijing with 19 affiliated hospitals. I studied medicine because my father was a doctor, a pulmonary physician. He decided to stay to study medicine after losing his mother to a minor infection when he was 13. My father did not expect to lose a brother, 15 years his junior, to a disease in his own specialty, the respiratory system. My father and Eric were first separated in 1947. My father, then 17, stayed behind in Nanchang, the capital of Jiangxi province in central southern China to finish his education, while Eric, age two, 
and other brothers and a sister sailed to Taiwan with their parents. With the end of World War II, Taiwan had been returned to China after five decades of Japanese occupation and there were job opportunities there. The family did not anticipate what would happen in 1949, the communist takeover of mainland China, and for them, the beginning of another kind of and very long separation. My father completed his medical education in Nanchang and had graduate training with one of the top respiratory physicians in Shanghai. But in the 1960s, the Cultural Revolution then took him to a small town and after that to a village where he was the sole doctor. He moved back to a major hospital in Nanchang in 1972. In the mid-1970s, my grandfather sent him, by way of Fiji, a letter at a previous address, and miraculously, it arrived. Soon, Uncle Eric became their emissary. Uncle Eric was the first member of my family to become an American citizen. He arrived in San Francisco in the late 1970s, drawn to an economic powerhouse of a country so starkly different from what he had grown up with in Taiwan. It was 35 years before the brothers met again in 1982. My father was a visiting scholar for a year at the Cardiovascular Research Institute, the University of California, San Francisco, where he conducted research on pulmonary edema and received a few months of clinical training in the intensive care unit in what is now called the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital and Trauma Center. In the early 1980s, the gap between China and the United States was gigantic, and my father has always been grateful for the education he received at UCSF and the kindness and generosity of the Americans he met. He brought his American training back to Nanchang to establish the first ICU in Jiangxi province and one of the first ICUs in China. He also established one of the first, if not the very first, Institute of Molecular Medicine in China. In 1985, I followed in his footsteps and in those of my uncles, Uncle Tim had immigrated to California as well. I went to San Francisco to study for my PhD, also at UCSF. My younger brother moved to the United States a few years later. In the 1990s, with the collapse of the Soviet model, America seemed to be the only other exemplar left. Having studied in the United States and with plans to work and live there for the long haul, I applied for American citizenship and obtained it in 2000. My children were born in the United States. But then 9-11 happened and this axis of evil emerged. Dick Cheney, Vice President Paul Wolfowitz, Deputy Secretary, Deputy Secretary of Defense David Addington, John Yu, and others were involved. These men were ready to do anything to advance their agenda, imposing their own law, meaning really no proper laws and no rule of law in Iraq, at Guantanamo and elsewhere, and too many Americans went along. That period proved to me that America was not the democratic beacon many of us had thought it to be. I first started looking into how to renounce my U.S. citizenship while I lived in Chicago, and then again after moving back to China in 2007. I completed the process in 2011, a decision that has been validated since by the advent of President Trump and Trumpism, which are a natural expansion of what was put in motion after 9-11. By the time my father retired in 2005, at 75, he had treated countless respiratory and ICU patients in China. He had worked through the SARS epidemic in 2002-03, issuing dark predictions that the virus or something like it would come back. He and I debate whether the new coronavirus proves his prediction right. As COVID-19 began to spread earlier this year, my father, now 90 and long retired, would send me advice about how to treat the disease so that I could relay it to other doctors, including the one leading response efforts in the city of Wuhan, the pandemic's epicenter early on. Our family has 12 members in Wuhan, mostly on my mother's side, and six in New York, mostly on my father's side. 
All my relatives in Wuhan are safe. Uncle Eric died in New York after the pandemic had moved to the United States, the world's strongest country militarily, the richest economically, and the most advanced medically. The United States had two months or more to learn from China's experience with this coronavirus, and it could have done much more to lower infection rates and fatalities. My father is struggling to accept his brother's death, partly, too, because he believes that he could have treated Uncle Eric, that in China, Uncle Eric would have been saved. As the pandemic rages on in the United States and throughout the world, with some smaller outbreaks in China, the United States and China are not collaborating, but competing in the search for a successful vaccine for the virus and treatment measures for the disease. My father's family has been divided for most of his life, separated mostly by the decisions of political leaders. For a long time, the United States seemed like the better place to live for those lucky enough to have such a choice. Now, my father and Uncle Eric have been separated once again. This time, that outcome doesn't speak well of America. The article was, my relatives in Wuhan survived, my uncle in New York did not, by Yi Rao, who's a molecular neurobiologist in China. It appeared in the New York Times, July 22nd. Okay, let's turn to our discussion for today. Very pleased to introduce my guests and let me start with Joki Murumba. Joki Murumba, PhD, is an assistant professor of emergency management and disaster preparedness at the University of Nebraska, Omaha. Dr. Murumba's dissertation was an examination of select indicators of social vulnerability and determinants of health and their impact on the global community during the H1N1 2009 pandemic. This work encapsulates Dr. Marumba's interest in the role of social vulnerability during public health disasters for purposes of engaging and bolstering social capital and indigenous knowledge towards more resilient communities. Dr. Jack L. Rosdilski is an associate professor and graduate program director for the Disaster and Emergency Management Program at York University in Toronto, Canada. He's currently a co-investigator on a novel coronavirus COVID-19 rapid research project sponsored by the Canadian Institutes for Health Research. Prior to joining York University, Dr. Rosdilski was a university professor of emergency management in both Illinois and in Texas. He also worked in the public sector inland using planning and has directed regional hazard mitigation planning efforts as well. So, Joki and Jack, thanks so much for making time today to come on COVID calls. Uh, thank you. Thanks to you. Joki, um, I just want to remind folks, uh, was on a previous episode uh, of COVID calls and I would just went back and looked, it was June 15th and in COVID time, that's a long time ago. That's a decade. It's so good to see you again. And uh, at that time, there were 115,998 deaths in the United States. We've more than doubled that count uh, now since we bring you back. If you don't mind, I'm gonna start with you, Joki, and just ask you to um, remind folks where you're calling from and give us an update on how the pandemic is there today. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Scott, for having us. Um, today, I am actually coming to you from Omaha, Nebraska, 
which is where I actually work. And while I have been teaching face to face, um, I, I have been staying here for the last few months. And um, I think I remember from the, my first um, appearance with you is that this was right before the first um, uh, presidential um, um, meeting where he was going to have a campaign rally in Tulsa. And I remember there was issues around, you know, uh, non-pharmaceutical um, interventions not being part of the planning and not being implemented and we do know how that turned out um, and uh, right now also in Omaha I would also like to reference yet another um, uh, rally that was a presidential rally that was held at uh, Epley uh, Airfield and the reason I, I reference that is because of some of the events that happened that day which include you know people again still these many months later not being um, able to to actually understand fully to comprehend fully and implement the the, the mandates for example of wearing masks at this incident and we do know that um, this is it's likely have, uh, have caused uh, um, some some spread as well. But coming back to Omaha, we have had 87,733 cases so far. We have unfortunately lost at least um, between 70, 730 to 740 um, lives, which is very, very unfortunate. Um, and, and those are numbers. The stories and, and is what you know offers us a deep understanding of what goes on, and and um, it, it's pretty un unfortunate. We are also projected to continue to have you know high numbers where our infrastructure, health infrastructure, is quite strained as well. So you know, appreciating first responders, but this does not augur well for a winter season that's about to start. And and the situation there in Nebraska, help us understand what kind of public health leadership you're getting there. Is there a statewide mask mandate? Is that politically impossible in Nebraska? What's happening with that? I think Nebraska is, is reflective of a lot of what we are seeing in majority of the of the states in this country, where there just isn't, it hasn't been a cohesive approach um, to, to how it is that people are responding to COVID-19, not understanding that the virus is who's the enemy rather than, you know, uh, partisan beliefs or whether or not we believe in science or not. So unfortunately, we do not have a very cohesive approach. We do have outstanding institutions such as the uh, University of Nebraska Medical uh, Center that are, you know, very forward thinking, very involved, very engaged. And we do have some select uh, political leaders as well who are trying as best as they can to admonish and encourage people, you know, to social distance, to wear the masks, to, you know, and our testing is at a, a million right now, which, which with a, an 8.1 one seven testing rate is is fair, but uh, we do know that coming into the winter season, there's there's going to be quite a strain and stress. So no, there there hasn't been a, a cohesive enough approach, and and unfortunately, too, uh, most of the approaches have not been in alignment, you know, with mm -hmm. what the science, what the science is telling us. Jack, let me turn to you, and I want to first. I just I always appreciate good coffee mug game. I noticed a second ago that you have uh, an I Love Flint mug. That's uh, uh, Yes, it is uh, uh, correct. Um, back in the days when we were able to travel to the United States from Canada, I was engaged in some research in uh, Flint, Michigan, uh, regarding the uh, water crisis as a non-routine disaster. 
which I wanted to continue on the ground in Flint in summer of 2020, but uh, I guess I look forward to 2021 or 2022 when I can get back to Flint. Well, so you're calling from uh, Toronto. I have really good friends there. I'm looking forward to hearing um, your update about how things are looking there in Toronto and Canada generally. Uh, yes, uh, Scott, uh, first I'd like to say I appreciate your introduction with both uh, the uh, numbers and providing some uh, humanity to it, because I think before we have any discussions during this crisis, we really need to acknowledge what's going on in the communities around us in terms of the suffering. And uh, today in Canada is uh, Remembrance Day, November 11, where we remember the sacrifices of the uh, of uh, people in past wars and the service provided to the nation. Uh, through people in the armed forces. And I also believe it's uh, Veterans Day uh, in the United States. So I'd like to acknowledge that. But but in terms of uh, here in Toronto, um, we're moving in the wrong direction. Uh, what I mean by that, the province of Ontario this morning set the new record of 1,426 new cases. The last new record was uh, yesterday. The last new record was the day before that. So we're moving in the wrong direction. Uh, out of the 1,426 new cases for the entire province of Ontario, 533, or about one-third of them, are here in Toronto. Uh, to date, we've had about 1,400 deaths in Toronto due to COVID-19. That's out of a city of uh, 2.9 million people in a larger region of about 6.2 million people. And, and if I may, I'd like to um, take the liberty to talk about Canada for a minute and just some of the things we're facing here with COVID-19. Uh, the current count for the nation of Canada stands at about uh, a total of 276,000 COVID-19 cases have occurred. And the uh, death count is today at 10,000. 678. Now, uh, in comparison to the United States, and I'm, I'm hesitant to do direct comparisons to the United States for many reasons, based on population size, uh, governance differences, cultural differences, etc. But if we look at uh, deaths per 100,000, just to attempt to do a, a rough comparison, in the US, it's at about 73 right now. In Canada, it's at 29, meaning that if we try to do an equivalent comparison, there's two and a half, uh, 2.5 times more deaths of COVID in, in the United States than Canada at this point. In terms of case counts, the United States stands at about 3,100 cases per 100,000, where Canada stands at 740 cases, meaning in terms of the cases, uh, the United States is 4.3 times higher than the United States in that indicator. And uh, I think some of the differences we I'm seeing here is that many people in the general population here take COVID-19 seriously. They are trying to do the right thing, socially isolate, wear masks, stay home from work, do the right thing. Uh, the patience is fraying. It's getting more difficult as time goes on and the economic damage stacks up. But I'm perceiving that society is generally taking it more seriously here than in some other uh, countries. Uh, also, Canada's uh, political leaders 
have focused on science over politics. Uh, our leader has been Justin Trudeau here, uh, not Donald Trump. And I think that makes a, a pretty large uh, difference. Also in Canada, there's a universal healthcare system where, and I think that's very important to have a stable healthcare system that's universally available, especially during a global pandemic. But in terms of what I study with disasters, 10,000 dead in Canada. And when I look at Canadian disasters, I've kind of studied and looked at in the past, probably the largest death count for disaster in Canada would also be a pandemic. And that would be the 1918 pandemic, mm -hmm. where the total death count was estimated to be about 55,000. That's about one fifth of what we face at this point. In terms of other types of disasters, uh, I'd point to the Halifax explosion in 1917, where the death toll of that uh, uh, harbor explosion was about 2,000 persons, about 9,000 persons were injured. Uh, but in terms of recent history, meaning the last uh, century, other than pandemics, the amount of death that we're facing on a constant basis from this public health disaster is hard, uh, I guess, to wrap our minds around at, at this point. Yeah. Thank you for that orientation to how COVID-19 is playing out in Canada. I want to follow up just a little bit on that because in the United States, um, I, and Jokey, uh, get your take on this too, but my sense of it is we've, we've truly been dealing with 50 pandemics. I mean, if, if you include territories, more than that, you know, 57. I mean, it. It's and, and part of that is a reflection, of course, of the unique de decentralization of the United States. And some might argue that there are certain advantages to be had in that decentralization. But at a time of a national crisis, we're, we're seeing the downsides of that in a tremendously dangerous way. And I, I wonder if you could just say a little bit, Jack, about Canada in that, in that mm -hmm. regard. Well, uh, Canada's also a, uh, there's a very wide and diverse country from East Coast to West Coast to the other coast uh, North uh, toward the Arctic. So not everywhere in Canada is experiencing the same type of COVID experience. But I think at least what I noticed from an intergovernmental relations standpoint, most of the, the federal government and most premiers, when it comes down to what needs to happen, they're on the same page that COVID-19 is serious. And a lot of times, uh, Premier Trudeau is recently in Public Health Canada. They're using words like fighting this uh, pandemic is a team Canada effort where we're all in this together. Provinces, federal government, cities, regional municipalities. There doesn't seem to be as sharp as a competition for resources, for power, for different 50 different juris uh, states, jurisdictions making decisions. Uh, and Canada seems to be at least um, for the time being a more unified uh, whole of society effort uh, taking place. Yeah. I'd like to say something about that and this and, mm -hmm. and expand it really briefly and say that when we're dealing with um, global challenges, be it climate change, be it pandemic, it really becomes central for us not only to um, understand the need for the cohesion at a global level, in this case, the World Health Organization, supporting 
World Health Organization supporting the systems, for example, the international health regulations that were passed in 2005, which speak directly to scenarios like what we are experiencing now. So at a, we, 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 I, we see what's happening in Canada, we see what's happening in the US, and I think we really need to exemplify the Canadas, the, the Taiwans, the New Zealands mm -hmm. at a global level and understand that you know the challenge is dynamic and it's global. And unless we come at it from that angle, then we unfortunately will be we left in scenarios like what we're seeing in this country. So I did want to expand the national to the global in some of these uh, very unique, uh, yet to be expected um, uh, hazard events that we are experiencing and will continue to experience. And, and Scott, I, I think this, what, what Joki said regarding the World Health Organization, uh, Canada did not withdraw support from the World Health Organization. Right. In right. fact, the project that we're working on myself, Jokey, and their team. Um, the project originated in early February, literally days after the WHO gave guidance on research. The government of Canada came out with a call for proposals for both social countermeasures and medical research. And this was based directly on recommendations from the WHO meetings taking place in late January and early February. When the global uh, when the global pandemic health emergency was uh, first uh, declared, so there's always been uh, a linkage between uh, global WHO health policy and the policy I think we're seeing put forward from the government of Canada to this point. Uh, they're not exactly the same. There's national differences, but they're trying to they're trying to stay on the same page in terms of scientific guidance, and I think it, it, I think it helps out. Well, maybe the United States will rejoin the community of, of nations here in a couple of months. This is a good point, I think, to make a segue to um, into the sort of the details of the study that you've both been working on together with your broader team. And, you know, these tensions between at, at all levels, you know, the international, the national and the subnational are more or less visible in different places. But one thing that's really pretty astounding to me, and, and Joki, I'm going to ask you this first, and then Jack, if you want to follow up, is, of course, this is a novel coronavirus, and so there's been a lot of attention paid to where it, where the origin is. There's an origin story for this disease, um, but, and, and there's an epidemiological story to be told about that, and, and there's much more to be known about that, but there's a social dimension to that, and that's what you both study. And, and I guess I want to start with that. Like, why does it matter, socially speaking, where a disease comes from? And, and the reason I ask that question is because you're, you're really engaged in this work in understanding the social ramifications of anti-Chinese bias in the wake of COVID-19. And so we have to, in a sense, sort of take it back to the source a little bit and think about why that matters socially. Joki, I, I want to start with you on that. I know it's a very broad question, but I'd like to start in this broad manner, if you don't mind. It's broad, but yet a very important uh, question, Scott, because if you don't know where you're coming from, how do you determine where you're at and where you're going, you know, in a nutshell? So if we are to understand what has happened and how we need to prepare for the journey ahead of us, figuratively speaking, we need to understand you know the origin, the 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 ground zero of 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 where this came up from. 
the mistakes that have happened though have to do with us and sometimes thinking that when we understand where it came from, and this relates to our study, um, is that therefore you demonize, distance, stigmatize the people from the, the area, the people who might not even be remotely connected to the area you know, at the time, who might be people living in the diaspora. So there has been the downside to that. But we know that with science and good understanding and good relationships and collaboration, social, political, geopolitical, right? Then when you have that collaboration, which is central to responding to, to the threat that we currently have, then there's access of scientists that are needed, there's openness, um, there's trust, which is very important for understanding the kind of pandemic which we are dealing with right now, obviously being one that's from a novel virus, which is new, which is a lot of learning that has to happen very quickly. So understanding where it comes from is, is central for that reason, okay? Now, it, it, it is not important for the for purposes of isolation it's not important for purposes of de demonization like i said right but it really is important for the science and the progression and for the development of the healing um, that needs to happen Jack, let me bring you in on this, this sort of question of, and I guess I'm partially, I'm sort of asking you also just about culture and a theory of culture. Like why, why do people want to associate a virus with a place or an ethnicity at all? Uh, well, I, I, I guess if we look at uh, novel uh, coronavirus, Wuhan, China, November 17, 20, 19, I believe is the first uh, the, the, the first instance where we knew there was a, uh, a, a a virus of this nature developing. Then around late December 2019, early January 2020, that's when the alarm bells started going off that there could be a potential risk of a global pandemic uh, should this specific type of coronavirus spread. Uh, outside of uh, China and Wuhan and Hubei uh, region. Uh, January 23rd of this year is when the lockdown happened in Wuhan, when other countries started considering the potential for spread of this pandemic on a globalized basis. January 25 was the first reported case in Canada, and that was here in Toronto. And that case had a direct link to a person who flew from China to Pearson Airport. When we look at culture and how this influences these things, I think we need to consider the context of globalization. Toronto is a globalized city. There is no problem on the planet Earth that is more than 16 to 19 hours away mm -hmm. from landing here in Toronto at Pearson uh, Airport. Uh, the flight from China takes 16 hours. January 25th, the case first arrives. Case number one in Canada related to a person arriving from China. But then we go forward from January 25th and what happened. Uh, by April, 
there were about 1,200 cases in Ontario. The cases uh, that were identified from uh, persons who, who traveled internationally was not coming from places like China, it was from the United States. At that point in time, very a handful of cases arrived from China, but 404 cases arrived from the United States. But since the origin was in China and that first case on January 25th came from China, there was a, um, a kind of a false perception that it was a Chinese virus that stuck early on. Now we know this is not a China virus. This is a coronavirus which happened to originate in China and spread everywhere. But what we know from public health emergencies, viruses have to originate somewhere. This time it happened to be in China, but it's not constructive to associate a virus exclusively with its place of origin on a globalized uh, planet. Because the next time, and it will be a next time, it could be here in Canada, it could be the United States, it could be uh, Kenya, it could be Argentina, it could be Germany, who we, we, we don't know. It's uh, not constructive in this day and age in a globalized society to look at these as national problems where we could place the blame on one place. They're more globalized public health emergencies where they start somewhere but quickly spread everywhere. And if I may quickly add something about what you know to what, to what uh, Jack has said is that um, whenever you have that uh, uh, blame type of game going on, when you you assign an outbreak specifically to a people or a place, right? Then that almost gives a licensing or a permissibility for the people who originate from there, which is what our study is about, to 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 therefore be treated in a, in ways that are quite dehumanizing, right? So it really is important to understand that we should understand what the challenge is, what the enemy is, so to speak. In this case, it's a SARS-CoV-2 right and treat it as such and like jack said understand that this is going to happen again and it could be from anywhere else that's to me really underlines such a, a fundamental uh, insight that disaster researchers have taught me which is that disasters reveal cleavages fractures biases that already exist within society and as both of you said i mean jack to this point that i mean you could argue from a Canadian perspective that it's not Chinese virus, it's a United States virus. And I think similarly in the United States, even though President Trump, we'll come to him in a minute, but talked in ways I won't even repeat about this virus, um, he has always associated it with East Asia and never associated it with Europe. Um, but it's not an accurate reflection of where the virus was coming into North America, particularly if you're looking at January and February. And just uh, anecdotally, uh, if, if we remember metaphorically uh, 5,000 years ago to January, the largest number of people killed in a disaster uh, of, who were Toronto residents was the air crash in Iran when the plane went down from the accidental missile strike. That was the largest death toll of Torontonians in a disaster, and that happened to occur not anywhere in even North America, but in Iran but that killed the most uh, Canadians and living in Toronto in recent history. Prior to that, it was a van attack killing 10 people 
and the streets of Toronto in 2018. But Toronto is such a diverse community. I haven't seen any disaster globally that doesn't have people directly affected here in Toronto, mm -hmm. whether it be an earthquake in China, a landslide in South America, uh, a typhoon in the Indian Ocean. There are people here in Toronto who are directly affected by those things. I think just showing um, us about the globalization of disasters, mm -hmm. which this pandemic, I think, really illustrates in ways we don't fully understand yet. So your research team came together to try to understand in a comparative dimension, the way that the virus has um, sort of brought about uh, anti-Chinese sentiment and, and action in many different sites. Jack, let me, I just wanna drill into the research a little bit and hear from you, because you, you have um, many different cases at play here. And Jack, you worked on the Turan, you're working on the Toronto Park. Can you say a little bit more for us about how anti-Chinese bias has worked in the midst of this pandemic in Toronto? Uh, yes, because as we talked about previously, as the first instance of the virus came into Canada from a flight from China, there was uh, unfortunately uh, attitudes that have developed in a disturbing trend of some segments of society, not all, but some convert uh, uh, falsely conflating this virus to the geographic location of China. That led then to a disturbing trend of discrimination towards people and places falsely conflated with a China virus. Now, this our research uh, in the project, myself and the team here in Toronto, did a series of qualitative uh, interviews in re uh, remotely in March, uh, April, May, and June with residents of the uh, Toronto uh, Toronto's Chinese diaspora community. And some of the um, stories that were told to us that we gathered through our research was that it started out subtly with microaggressions. Uh, for example, if an Asian person would be on the subway wearing a mask, other people would walk to the next subway car or try to uh, avoid them. Uh, there was a business, a restaurant called the Wuhan uh, Noodle Shop in uh, Markham, Ontario, just outside of Toronto. And because this uh, Chinese restaurant had the word Wuhan in its name. People stopped going there because they may have been afraid to uh, uh, get, get sick from the restaurant, although it was just the name of a place. It had nothing to do with what was happening in China. But then as the uh, summer dragged on, we began to see a shift toward more outright discrimination in June, July, and August. For example, there was an incident of a man who refused to wear a mask in a uh, Asian grocery store. Then he went on a tirade yelling uh, at a uh, Asian grocery store employee in a very racist way, uh, just kind of blaming uh, an entire people and a culture for the virus, which doesn't make any sense. We've also seen some instances of pushing, some instances of shoving. Uh, but I have to note that, in general, Toronto's not a violent place. Uh, we haven't seen incidents like uh, the one we saw in Flint with someone being shot at a store over not wearing a mask. Things like that haven't happened. But in speaking with members of Toronto's Asian diaspora community, they indicated that there was a climate of fear, that they were worried and that they were seeing and experiencing things that made them uncomfortable where um, 
And I think the bottom line now, uh, when we look at this in November, we are all acting right now how the Chinese community was acting in January and February. Uh, mm -hmm. Right now, masks are required everywhere. Everyone is wearing masks. No one's stigmatizing anyone for wearing masks or asking about the origin or ethnicity. It's a requirement. People follow it for COVID safety. But in the early days of the pandemic, when the Chinese community started acting very early on doing this, people would look at them cross-eyed. Why are you wearing a mask? Are you wearing a mask because you're sick? And their answer was, no, we're wearing a mask to keep you healthy. We we have a culture that does this. We're trying to help you. But uh, I guess now that the tables have turned where <laughs> what uh, the Asian culture knew all along now, everyone's becoming more like that out of uh, necessity. Joe Key, let's get the perspective of the part that you worked on. You brought the 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 view from Kenya, from Nairobi. Kenya, East Africa, Nairobi, which is my home originally. And I have to give credit as well to uh, some of my team members, including Martin Tubula, with whom we have been working with in Kenya. And uh, what we realized whenever we started working with, with um, a number of uh, Chinese uh, community members in, living in the diaspora in Kenya is that there were some areas of confluence and then there was areas of diversion, right? Which was expected with the Toronto team. The confluence includes some of what uh, Dr. Rosdilski has said, you know, where people were, people of Chinese origin were looked at very suspiciously, interpersonal relationships were broken. You know, there was some discriminating and some stereotyping. So there was some of that. But uh, we also find uh, very interestingly is that um, stigma is not static, right? Kenya is, 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 is showing us this quite evidently because within a few months after, you know, the, the, the pandemic was declared, we initially saw a stigma uh, that was directed towards people of Chinese origin. And then it began to also shift to where people of African origin in China were also being discriminated against. They were being denied services such as healthcare, housing, um, employment, you know, they were being uh, uh, roughed up in some instances as well, which was was a bit confounding, you know, to, to try and understand, right? Um, and then from that uh, segment of people, we also see now that stigma is now directed towards people who have either gotten the disease or their family members who, you, you, you know, as well, out in the communities. So the centrality of the question becomes, you know, yes, we are looking at stigma, but what we really are dealing with is what the Director General for the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus, says is an infodemic, is an infodemic where people do not have the information, the learning, the understanding, and the knowledge to understand that we are, we are in a pandemic, it, it, the information is evolving that is coming out as more studies come out and, you know, as, as more, more learning happens around the epidemiology of the disease and, and stigma is beginning to evidently show that to us. And so we have also seen um, stigma extended to healthcare workers. Right, because people are uh, think that they might be bringing the disease home. So understanding that the results of stigma are isolation, depression, social, you know, just the general social stigma, and sometimes violence is also important because this is a, 
the coronavirus and um, you, you know COVID nineteen is is a disease that um, requires for us to not work and operate in fear, but operate in information and help seeking. Um, tendencies. So when people are fearful and do not go out for the kind of help that they need because of being stigmatized, then we will really have a difficult time trying to uh, respond to and begin the recovery process from this disease. That's uh, There's so much in what you're both describing here and, and this idea that stigma is not static is really useful, I think, because this is not a, a disaster that most of us are trained to think with. We're used to dealing with very event-driven or very long durée, like climate change. This is neither. This is mm -hmm. a sort of meso-level kind of thing. So this idea that fear could gather around one sort of source of stigmatization, the Chinese community, let's say, um, and then break from that and regroup around essential workers or regroup around um, healthcare workers. I hadn't really considered that in that way. That's really um, an impressive insight, I think. And I, I think that's, uh, I mean, I, um, I appreciate like the, the work of the team members here in Toronto and the, the work Dr. Uh, Maramba and uh, the colleagues in uh, Africa are doing because I think just doing, uh, being able to look at things, even though it's not a one-to-one -one comparison, we're finding there may be some similar themes between the emergence and the evolution of stigma in places like here in Toronto and places like Nairobi, Kenya, which may allow us perhaps uh, when the work is done to look at greater insights of how we could find effective global solutions to these uh, problems, at least may maybe in a tiny way. Yesterday on COVID calls, I had Alondra Nelson, who's the president of the Social Science Research Council. And we were talking about the incredible creativity uh, of social science researchers at this time. And I just want to underline, Joki, you are somehow were facilitating a qualitative research study from the middle of North America to East Africa under a pandemic condition, which is different in both places. And Jack, you're doing the same, but from Canada. Mm -hmm. um, and and you're, you're as you said remotely, so you're not in those in those communities. Um, I guess I just want to know a little bit more. I'm not asking you to give away all your trade secrets, but can you tell me a little bit more here about how one deploys a study like this with this geographic complexity, ethnic complexity, linguistic complexity? There's a lot happening here. No, and I, I could just um, say there's something that's helped me out in, uh, a, a tiny bit. Um, in, in the field of uh, disaster social science research, there's a type of research called rapid response or quick response research. And in the, uh, in the past, I've engaged in a number of quick response types of projects in relation to looking at natural hazards like uh, volcanoes, natural hazards like wildfires, flooding, uh, etc. I think that has kind of helped out. But what's different, I, I think, with this pandemic, all of the aspects of having to do our work remotely, not being able to be in person for field work. But even before that, the last time I was in my university office was uh, March uh, 19th. I don't have the infrastructure of the university here at my fingertips to do research. It's what I have surrounding me on this table. 
yet we have to find ways to do everything from the grant writing to the grant management, to the engaging in research, to the communication, to even seeking the ethical clearance for interacting with human subjects at people in offices where the offices are closed because everyone at the university is working from a remote uh, basis. So um, I just, um, I think doc, Dr. Marumba um, could also uh, comment on this, but the number of additional hours taken to just get basic research tasks done to the extent we can, I don't think any of us have ever estimated that what, what this would take. And we're, we're trying, I'm not saying we're doing excellent in it, but we're trying, we're getting some results and under the circumstances, uh, that's, I guess that's better than waiting to see, than losing potential perishable data mm -hmm. that could be collected now because we say this is too hard or too difficult or there are too many barriers. Mm -hmm. All the barriers are there. We can't overcome all of them, but at least we, I think we've overcome enough to get some initial findings and data uh, from both Canada and Kenya, which we're now analyzing as a team. And also to add to that, I would like to, to commend the human resolve and the role of technology. And with human resolve, I go back to just knowing that my team and I have never physically met, not even with my team members in Kenya. We have never physically met, but we are organized and single-minded around trying to understand and capture the ephemeral data that Dr. Rodzilski has talked about. We are unequivocal about understanding the depth, right, of what is inhibiting and getting in the way of human beings um, mainstreaming and understanding disasters from a global perspective. You know, understanding like, like Jack so aptly stated that anything is 16 uh, uh, hours away one way or the other, right? Mm -hmm. So there's that resolve and that understanding. And that understanding is not, is not just the, the forte of a certain group of people. It is the forte of the human being across the globe. Right? And we see that as people make efforts, whether it's um, you know, local researchers in Kenya or, in, or individuals in a home, we have seen that. And also the role of technology. Kenya is a country that has been known to be quite uh, robust in the application and contextualization of, mm. of, of, of technology, right? Not necessarily the internet, but technology to work for individuals and the community, right? And we see that now that we are able to conduct research remotely, connect with researchers in Kenya, and then they can connect with and, 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 and work with people using their phone or, or, or various computer applications so that they're able to get a hold of those people. So COVID has had a lot of negative um, implications for us, but then there's a lot of compressed learning and growth and change and, and shifts that it has also uh, facilitated. And this is clearly one of them, just being able to understand um, mm -hmm. the, the frontiers that we can now walk into um, for research purposes. Let's talk a little bit about the coping behaviors and the mutual aid, the ways that uh, Chinese community and the sites you've been studying have um, either weathered or organized or pushed back against um, <laughs> these different actions that you've described. I don't know, either of you would like to, to start with that. I'd like to hear from both of you about it. 
Yeah, I, I'd like to, to mention something briefly and, and, and in honor and respect of Dr. Rao Yi, who you actually talked about at the beginning um, when when you did mention about how, you know, his, he, his family is in China and his family is in um, New York, where he, I, I believe, is where Uncle Eric's life was lost, right? Correct. That right there encapsulates um, for us that which joins us, right? And here's what I mean. WeChat is something that you mentioned, right? As a form of communication between people who are living in China and people of Chinese origin living outside of China, right? So when you look at coping mechanisms, right? Communication is central. Communication, not just with the officials that we have, but communication with people that bring you comfort, people that bring you solace. And in this case, communication with people who were in Wuhan, where, you know, the, 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 the SARS-CoV virus was identified first um, and the rest of the world. So we see that there's a lot of coping, the wearing of masks, for example, people of Chinese origin in Kenya, right? And even historically have been known to wear uh, masks um, as, just as part of their culture. So we also are able to learn culturally right what it is that they have used to protect themselves and and the people the chinese people living outside of china have also been able to offer information and learning to the communities where they are because they are getting information through different uh, systems from their country and adopting them as well so they have learned to cope and by extension the communities where they live in have also benefited from that so the banning of wechat for example right in, in, or the attempt to ban WeChat um, in this country, for example, does more for creating vulnerability than it does for resilience. Jack, can I hear from you about this? I mean, I hadn't also, it's another yeah. way I hadn't quite considered, but I should have, that the, the existence of the communication across the diaspora is, is a point of strength in oh, this yeah. time. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, in, in the province of Ontario, on March 17th is when the COVID-19 state of emergency was officially declared. The border restrictions for international travel, including closure of the United States border, for the most part, except for essential travel, went into place on March 18th. But the Chinese diaspora community in the Toronto area, we noticed, was experiencing the pandemic in early January. That was when people were returning, relatives, family, and friends from holiday travel in China. Um, they were doing things like calling up their workplaces and saying, I returned from China. There's a virus there. I'm going to voluntarily self-isolate and not go into work for two weeks. People were doing temperature checks. People were wearing masks. People were voluntarily self-isolating before this came the norm became the norm for Canadian society. So I, I wouldn't say it was really a, a, a fighting back. I would say it it was a community taking early actions, regardless of the potential of that uh, community to be uh, stigmatized. Uh, that that's kind of how I would uh, characterize it. Highlighting and what what our research tries to do is highlight some of the capacities 
that specific communities, in our case, the Chinese diaspora community can bring to the forefront in these pandemic situations. Because I think in the end, highlighting these capacities may help to avert uh, negative actions that people would take who choose to stigmatize others for whatever reason, where instead of being viewed as a threat in terms of virus and sickness, the Chinese diaspora community could be viewed as a resource, which brings capacities, which brings valuable research, I mean, excuse me, valuable experience to the community and mitigating the spread of infectious disease as what we found in our work in Toronto. Uh, and it was unfortunate because right now in uh, November, October, November, we are catching up to where the Chinese diaspora community was essentially in late January in terms of everybody uh, acting like that, taking preventive measures to uh, uh, prevent, to stop the spread of COVID. If I may give a quick example, of why understanding stigma is is really central, not just during the response phase, but even recovery and into mitigation. I'd like to give an example of uh, Salome Kara, uh, a Liberian Ebola su survivor, right, from Monrovia. Mm -hmm. And she not only survived Ebola, but she, was, she then turned around and became a, a caregiving nurse to people who were infected by Ebola, right? Then after she left the, 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 treat, the treatment area where you know, she was re receiving help and also help, uh, then be, be, became a nurse and was uh, a resource helping uh, Liberians who were impacted by the disease, she went home and her goal was to create a nonprofit of people she called um, superheroes who had survived Ebola because she knew and internalized, right, that Ebola would be coming back again. Now here is where stigma comes in, is that after she survived Ebola, she then lost her life while giving birth to her fourth child when she was taken to a hospital and was not treated in a hospital because they were afraid to touch her knowing that she had Ebola at one time. That is what stigma does. We take out capacities, we take out lives, and we end up suffering as humanity. I want to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls and we're talking about anti-Chinese stigma in the pandemic. We have, uh, oh, it's okay with you both. We could maybe talk a few more minutes. I didn't ask before we started if you had a hard stop at six. Okay, good. I have another couple of questions for you. I think we can move quickly past this one, but I think I'd remiss, be remiss if I didn't point out that the United States has uh, gone through quite an extraordinary period in lots of ways um, through this pandemic, one of which is something that even... I didn't expect, which is that the president of the United States led uh, an overtly racist um, attempt to characterize this virus um, as being spread by Chinese people, Chinese diaspora, somehow connected with some conspiracies. Unclear, of course, conspiracy can never, to be powerful, should not be fully spelled out. It's meant to be left kind of murky and let people fill in the blanks. But unfortunately, the impact 
um, was real and documented uh, anti-Chinese bias attacks uh, in in the United States. This is my question. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what kind of variable you assign to Donald Trump, but I'm curious to know how much in your thinking, how much power you ascribe to a single individual in as you think about a study like this, because I could, I've heard it described in different ways. And some have said, yeah, obviously without Trump, there'd be less of this. Others have said, well, in a sense though, Trump is so clear in his racism that it allows a sort of gathering against him in a sense. He, he, he's so polarizing, he's so obvious in his attempts that it might backfire to a certain degree. I, that's, and I've made that too binary and you don't have to choose one or the other of those, but I'm curious how you think about the Trump effect in this regard, because it's been so clear in the United uh, Scott, States. Uh, Scott, here's the problem. How many people have died in Philadelphia today where you are? How many people have died in Chicago? How many people have died in Detroit? And why are we, uh, Scott, I, the, please don't take this the wrong way, but why are we, forced to discuss the inner workings of a mind of a person who's probably not qualified to be doing the job versus solving the problem of saving lives and cities on the streets of America, that that's unconscionable. Uh, At least um, I'm looking at perspective from Canada and observing from afar. I see, uh, I think the president, the words of the president of the United States do matter, period, because the person is the president of the United States. But in contrast, to have a leader like Prime Minister Trudeau, number one, in public, he wears a mask. Number two, he trusts science. Number three, he's not viewing this as a competition for resources, prestige, power, or fame. He is not holding super spreader events. He is trying to engage in proper forms of risk communication using the power of the federal government as a tool to help people solve problems rather than to create divides. And then I I think we have an intangible here. I don't know how to measure or characterize, but that intangible is compassion. Uh, Compassion, which uh, I haven't seen from many leaders in the United States, but I am seeing that from leaders in Canada. Uh, Mm -hmm. Dr. Maramba, please. Yes. Thanks. Great Thanks. response. Yeah. Um, the, the, the Rwanda genocide happened in 1994. And what researchers have told us, which the people of Rwanda could also have told us, is that words meant something. Mm. Words had value, especially specific words repeated or used or directed in a certain word. They had value. And what the research from the Rwanda genocide tells us, right, with regard to words, is that patterns of speech offer permissibility for non-linguistic behavior. People internalize this and end up acting out in a certain way. We know that when people come to make, when people are faced with a decision, especially in disasters, they triangulate decision making. So whereas they might look to see what grandma thinks, they might also remember what the president said. So the words of a president, the words of a leader, right, are not just words with power, but words with power and responsibility 
Mm-hmm. And responsibility. So if the two are not working together, understanding that responsibility, and Jack very aptly painted that picture for us, when you don't understand the responsibility that comes with the power of your words, right, then we end up having people who in the process of decision making apply your words to allow them to treat other people a certain way, right? Which, like in our case, is what we're seeing with the stigma, right? Mm -hmm. So it might not happen right now, but I'm pretty sure there's someone who is trying to measure and understand this effect. And and Scott, if I may, um, whenever it comes, I'd like to talk about the metrics of measurement. Mm -hmm. How measure impact is evolving and it's the work that we are always um, trying to, to, to nail and understand. And the minute we understand it, then we under, we realize, oh, there's more to this. And we, we're trying to get ever so closer to getting a fuller picture. You're both so eloquent about this. I, I'm, just, I'm just so enjoying, I mean, enjoy is not the right word in this time, but you know what I mean, listening to you talk about this and learning so much. I, we're almost up on time. I wanna get one more question in, and it's exactly to this point, um, Joki, you were just making. So um, social science, research generally, um, especially like yours is aspirational towards um, knowledge and presumably towards changing policies at many different levels um, and as it should be and as I think it will. At the core of that is a is a problem and I don't have to explain your study to you, but Joki, you just said, um, how do we, first of all, there's a policy world out there that loves numbers. They wanna be able to put everything on a scale of one to 10 or they wanna mathematize, they need the quantities. And what you're describing, what you're researching and describing and, and documenting for us and translating for us um, are many, some are quantifiable, but they're qualitative and, and you're trying to do this very difficult work. Yes, yes. And so I guess I wanna, um, and I did not do anything near justice to the complexity of what you're trying to undertake in that regard, but I guess I wanna sort of get you as we close out to think a little bit about the outcomes you think are possible of, of this work and others who might follow your work and how you will go about the translation, this difficult social science translation into action, into policy, because I think that's what all of us are trying to figure out every day in this world of disaster research. You're right about the the, the effort that we, a lot of people are involved in trying to, to quantify and, and, and have the numbers. You know, that's what the policymakers want to see, but that's a singular story. Right? That's a singular story. There's more to the story. There's the stories around those numbers, just like you do with your show. You read, the, you humanize, right? The the numbers that we read, and that is part of the work that we are trying to do, which is accept and acknowledge that there's not a single story. Go on a quest for the different stories, and see how it is that we can integrate and create interoperability between what is happening in one community and another, not from one community into another. Transferability doesn't always happen like that, but what, what, what is it that's happening amongst the Chinese community members traveling back to the countries where they live from Chinese New Year celebrations that we need to take note of? 
What is the indigenous learning processes? How can we influence people? What, what can we use to tell people the story of Ebola, the story of COVID-19, and how do we take that and contextualize it based on what they, they are telling us? And then what do we learn from them as well, right? So the work is immense, right? It will take multiple iterations because the minute you think you're getting somewhere, then you realize there's more to it, right? But it's going to take all means of dissemination of information, right? We have to reach to place, technology is making it possible for us to reach places where we haven't historically seen a wealth of information coming out of, but uh, we see some of that happening. And then now we need to keep the work going, keep the work going. I hope I've responded to uh, some of what you- Absolutely. And I'm gonna let Jack have the last word on this. Uh, yes, uh, uh, Scott, I, I would say two things. Thing number one, at, at least uh, I, I think the point of view in which I approach a disaster and emergency management as an academic discipline, part of which is uh, research, it's important to remember that there's a scholarship, uh, a scholarly aspect of the domain, and there's a strict practitioner aspect of the domain also, and what we're trying to do in our work uh, with the uh, team, including uh, Dr. Mumaji here in Toronto, Dr. Charlotte Lee at Ryerson, Terry Chewett also at York, uh, the work of Dr. Marumba, uh, Martin uh, Tubla in Kenya. These are, our team has connections to people on the ground who are doing the hard work today. And we're trying to at least solicit input receive guidance and honor uh, what they're telling us, whether it agrees with what we think is happening or not. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, acknowledging that scholar practitioner combination is important. And then second, I would say the attempt to access the field to get the voice of people who are directly involved experiencing these disasters and crises. Uh, as we talked about before, uh, the difficulties of doing research under COVID, as uh, Dr. Marumba um, uh, mentioned uh, uh, aptly, how much we're depending on technology now and expanding creativity, but just finding ways, even if it's difficult, to get in the field real in real life or virtually to access information from people who have something to say uh, about how they're experiencing, living through, and coping uh, with the uh, disaster. I'd like to remind everybody that you've been listening to COVID calls, and you could catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. And uh, Jack and Jokey, thank you so much for this. Uh, it's been a really great hour of learning. Uh, do you? Can you tell us? I know you have one. Um, report already out and available. Can you give us a little bit of a timeline for the work as we're closing out here? Uh, y y yes, right now, if if I may uh, briefly just give a uh, a simple uh, internet address. Sure. It's uh, the letters uh, E M F O A F O R A L L dot com or E M for all dot com. That's a site that our project has established where we have our initial report uh, issued. Uh, right now, uh, yeah, thank you for putting on the screen. We have an initial report uh, available for viewing on that site. Uh, we're currently working on analyzing uh, data we collected from the uh, summer months and 
uh, both on the uh, Kenya side and on the Toronto side. Uh, we're looking forward to see how we have to adapt to be able to continue our research into uh, 2021 to now begin to apply some of the things we are finding to potentially uh, assist practitioners and communities in both the public health and emergency management realm to do work which contributes to reducing discrimination and stigma around this disaster. Jack Radzilski, great to meet you. Joki Murumba, great to be with you again. And I hope that you'll both consider coming back with other members of your team as we get into 2021 and tell us how the research is going forward. Look forward to seeing you again. Stay healthy, everybody. And we will see you tomorrow at five o'clock.